So I am here today with Oren J. Sofer, a meditation teacher, Dharma teacher. How do you identify, Oren? How, <laughs> how do you describe yourself? Yeah. Um, uh, when people ask, I say that I, uh, I, teach, I teach meditation, Dharma, and communication. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's, that's a good combo. That's like a good uh, uh, tripart combo there. Mm. So, Oren, we, um, we talked... I guess it was maybe a month or two ago before you went on retreat. You've just come out of a longish retreat. As it was it at the Forest Refuge that yeah. you're practicing yeah. up in Massachusetts. Nice. What can you? Maybe we could start there. How how was the retreat? What was it like to um, spend? I guess it was a month that you were practicing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was really sweet. Um, you, I mean, you know what retreats can be like, so it's, uh, it's never... I vaguely remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have a child, so it's harder to do that now. Um, but, uh, you know, it's never all one thing or any or all one way, but, um, you know, just the opportunity to put one's life down and step out of the, the rush and the flow and the pressures and the busyness of the world itself is just a huge gift and blessing. And, um, you know, the forest refuge at IMS is, um, uh, pretty, pretty ideal, uh, conditions mm -hmm. to meditate and practice. It's beautiful. It's quiet. It runs well. Um, and, uh, the, the teacher on the retreat was my main primary, uh, teacher, uh, Ajahn Sachito, who's, um, you know, been a monk for, longer than I've been alive over 40 years and, um, just has a really, um, clear, thorough, um, and expansive understanding and embodiment of the path. And it was a huge, uh, yeah, it's just a huge blessing to get to spend time uh, with him in that space and uh, hear his his teachings and uh, and put them into practice. So I'm I'm feeling, yeah, refreshed, renewed, grateful, and uh, yeah, and happy to be here on the call with you today. Yeah, likewise. Um, it's really cool that you were able to set this retreat up in a way. I imagine just before the release of your first book is this your first book mm -hmm. yeah it is yeah congrats thanks yeah say what you mean right a mindful approach to nonviolent communication so this is just coming out now and you're i guess you're I, are you going kind of on book tour are you sort of doing the you know doing the thing i am yeah yeah my first uh today the day we're recording my first uh will be my first book event oh cool uh, yeah yeah tonight in uh in cambridge and uh then you know onwards from there kind of uh West Coast, uh, some places, uh, New York, Philadelphia, New Jersey, and and so on. The next few months. Nice. So, so in a way, you get to apply all of the uh, practice and uh, concentration you've been building, and all that. You get to kind of bring it, bring it on tour with you. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, um, one of the things that uh, one of the the gifts challenges you know um maybe just better to say processes of going on retreat is that you know uh so much of the learning in, in many ways can happen after the retreat uh when you come back to your life uh in that process of integration and really exploring okay what's different now what's fallen away uh, and we get to see our patterns, our habits more clearly. And because of that, um, the concentration and clarity and space that's been created in the mind to whatever degree, um, there's more possibility of, uh, reshaping the ways that we relate and function to ourselves and others in the world. So, you know, there's, there's that one aspect of kind of bringing, the the gifts and the learning into the world and teaching and book tour but there's also this other you know process happening which 
is really rich and engaging for me always, which is that sense of um, continuing the retreat by by deepening. Okay, well, what's been learned here? How do I how do I sustain and integrate this? And how does it how does it transform the way I live? Which is really the point of the practice. Mm, yeah, it's it's easy to be a, a fairly ideal human. I've noticed on retreat, <laughs> I mean, not not necessarily always easy, but you know what yeah. I mean. It's it's a little easier. Yeah, yeah. You're not talking to anyone. You know, <laughs> people are cooking for you. It's like you know, it's pretty easy. You don't have much to do. So yeah, so it's easier to not get into trouble. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and that's you know, it's part part of what we talked about last time and wanted to go go into in more depth with you is sort of exploring this model of um, retreat practice and then coming out into daily life practice and then going back into retreat and then coming out, mm-hmm. um, you know, this sort of interesting hybrid model of um, it's like not quite monastic, you know, we're not living this sort of full time and um, practice mm-hmm. life where the environment is always crafted toward Dharma practice, nor is it, you know, um, sitting 10, 20 minutes a day. It's, you know, there, there are these really immersive periods of deep settling and mm-hmm. investigation and heart opening, you know, that happen on retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, you know, like you, um, this has been one of my main ways of practicing. In fact, I, you know, I, I got to know you through my wife, Emily Horn, who, uh, you and he, you and she, um, uh, participated in a four-year retreat teacher training through right. Spirit Rock Meditation Center and Insight Meditation Society. And, um, you know, it's so much, I've learned so much just from listening to Emily talk about her, you know, uh-huh. her, her, her training experience and what she's learned. And um, yeah, I wanted to talk to you a bit about that as well. You know, what, yeah, absolutely. What are the, what are the upsides of this approach? Um, mm-hmm. you know, what does it, what does it seem to give people, mm-hmm. uh, or offer people mm-hmm. in, in, in our time? And, mm-hmm. and also what are, what are the things that, um, you know, that, that aren't necessarily working so well or mm-hmm. areas that could be improved or are being improved? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Things the limitations, like that. yeah, the limitations, you know, the things that, um, you know, this is our way of practicing. And so obviously we like it, uh, and, and, and love it, but it's also, you know, there's like with everything, there's, there's challenges and sure. problems and things like that. Yeah. 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 I've, uh, I, I, I'm, I feel very happy <laughs> hearing the question and hearing you just share all that. Cause it, yeah, it's, I think it's something that we, uh, all, you and Emily and I all share, um, which is this, this, uh, both a love and and also a certain degree of focus on bridging that gap between the 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 sacredness in some way and the power of a silent meditation retreat um and the the demands the beauties the challenges the richness of ordinary daily life um and uh you know it's that that interest is one of the reasons i you know, so one of the limitations, one of the main limitations within this kind of wider insight meditation tradition that you, know, you and Emily and I have done a lot of our practice in um, is partly just structural in the sense that the uh, community and the institutions <clears throat> uh, to a large degree have not provided uh, any um f- any format or uh, venue uh for people to have support in integrating the retreats there are there are a few exceptions in local communities that have a strong local uh dharma center you know like the community in cambridge where i'm teaching at tonight you know which is cimc happens to be the oldest residential or, or not sorry the oldest urban uh, community insight meditation center in the country uh, mm. that Larry Rosenberg founded many years ago, and so you know they have a really robust community and program, and people come off retreat there. There's a lot to plug into, but that's unique and that's rare. Yes, and so for most people, even if they go back home to a sangha to a meditation community, um, there's often not a lot available for, you know, what do I do and how do I. How do I work with what comes up and how do I keep alive the insights or the learnings that happened on, on retreat? So 
I think you and Emily, you know, know the the course, the online course that I created called Next Step Dharma. Yes. Which is this uh, six to eight week online community for when people come off retreat to get support, to find other people, to have conversations with a teacher um, and get some guidance. So that's kind of, that's one major gap just in a very simple way that I think can be addressed um, on a local level with this online course that I'm doing with some of the things that you and Emily do through your online courses. Uh, so that's that's kind of one area, but um, maybe maybe to start, maybe to go back to the first part of your question, um, which is the benefits, and uh, and then we can dig in a little bit more to some of the other other limitations. Yeah. Well, benefits. Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> it doesn't make sense on the surface of it, you know, to me that people would go and be quiet for week or more at a time. So mm-hmm. there's obviously something <laughs> these people are getting. Right, I say these yeah. people, obviously yeah, I'm included. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, how to yeah. talk about the benefits? Cause it's, um, mm-hmm. the benefits are not culturally that, I mean, I guess it's changing, but it, yeah. traditionally they're not something that are seen necessarily from the broader cultural right. perspective as being beneficial. Right. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah, for the most part, for the most part. I mean, there's there's exceptions, obviously, but, you know, just that the, generally our, our, our Western uh, culture doesn't doesn't really value um, I don't know, you say spirituality or uh, cultivation of the heart or, you know, mm, certainly monasticism and there have been cultures throughout time that have valued those things more certainly you know indian culture is one of them um but even certain areas of kind of more um western culture and, and other periods and other times have valued like christian monasticism or things like this where you do have an aspect of the society that's devoted more to um the cultivation and pursuit of a different relationship with consciousness, the divine meaning of being alive, think things like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that, I think that one, le- and on one level, the, the value and the benefit is, is, can be fairly apparent, um, on the surface when, once you get in there, it's a, it's a little bit harder, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think most of us today can look at the, the pace of modern life the amount of pressure that most of us are living with, whether that's economic pressure, social pressure, uh, uh, relational or otherwise, and and recognize the need and the value for stepping out and kind of detox. You know, we talk mm. about digital detox sometimes, like turning your devices off for a day, but 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 like a deeper detox of the mind and the heart of actually really just turning the volume down on the busyness, on the sensory input, on the the conflict, on the messiness, on the confusion, uh, on the friction of daily life. And so, you know, people go on vacation for that, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, one, one of the, you know, there's that sense of like, where, where do we rest? How do we rest and not just sleep, but how do we actually rest the mind and the heart? And so... And all, all that sounds great, obviously. Um, and you say, oh, yeah, wow, meditation retreat. Oh, yeah, sounds great. I'll go and kind of, you know, and then you get in there, obviously. And after <laughs> after a few hours, you realize I don't have my phone. I don't have my computer. There's no one to talk to. There's nothing to read. I can't go munch when I want. Like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> yes. You know, you start to actually feel, and this is where, you know, anyone who's done a detox knows that, you know, there's that period at the beginning where your body's releasing the toxins that feels really crappy. (laughs) You know, you get a headache and you feel, you know, and like you just want to eat sugar or have coffee or whatever it is. And so there's this kind of, um, there's this period where, you know, we would call it in the Buddhist tradition purification where the kind of residual momentum of all of those habit energies are really coming to the surface and being released. And that's, that's uncomfortable. But once you've done it a few times, 
you learn how to ride ride the waves. You learn how to move through that choppy water without, you know, swallowing too much of it or getting tossed around by the waves. Uh, and you also know what it's in service of because you've you've been through it enough times. You know, like yeah, yeah, this is just how it goes. And you know, most most of us who teach retreats. And those who have sat more than a few retreats, you know, know like, yeah, the first few days of a retreat are the hardest because the mind and the body are going through on, on, on many levels, you know, uh, are going through this detox so that the mind and all of its thoughts and the emotions and all of the backlog of stress, and, and that happens even in the tissues, yeah. the muscles and the body and the, the tensions that we've been holding without even knowing it. So that's, you know, that's one major benefit. Of, of having the space, the support, the container of a silent meditation retreat. And, you know, I, I sat one retreat here at IMS many years ago with a different monastic teacher, uh, Ajahn Amaro. And um, I loved he said at the beginning of the retreat something that I, I found very uh, helpful and meaningful, which is he said, you know, we do all these meditation practices and they're useful. His techniques are helpful. He said, but... To be honest, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, you know, he said, you know, we could all, if we all just came here, followed the five precepts, these five mindfulness training guidelines or rules of around not causing harm and particularly maintaining verbal silence uh, and curtailing the mental proliferation as much as possible. Uh, if we just got together, maintained silence, maintained the precepts, for a week, <laughs> you'd get a lot of benefit. Like you would understand certain understandings and realizations would occur. And, you know, you would like things would unfold just by being in that kind of a, a setting where, you know, we're all abiding by these agreements to treat each other with care and respect and kindness and generosity. Um, uh, and where we're working together to, you know, someone's cooking, someone's cleaning, and, you know, we're all helping out, but we're maintaining silence, not getting in each other's business, respecting the space. That's powerful in and of itself. Yes. And it's rare, you know, so rare to have that kind of a, not only that kind of a setting, but just even the circumstances in one's life to to take a break like that and not be on the phone or having to respond to emails or, you know, wash the kids clothes or, you know, all the various things that we are responsible for in our daily lives. So just that I think is, is a lot. And I think most, I would imagine most people can understand the value of that, but that's that what's so fascinating and just remarkable to me about this practice and this path is that that's, you know, that's the, that's like the gift wrapping, <laughs> You know, that's like the beautiful gift wrapping. That's like, oh, that's that, you know, the ribbon and the bow and this kind of glittery, right? It's like, oh, that's so beautiful. I don't, I don't even want to, I don't even want to unwrap the gift, but there's something precious inside, you know? So the, the silence and the container and the, the precepts, the, the care and the community, all, all of that's there to support us to, to free our hearts and minds from the ways that we get entangled and uh, torment ourselves and others. And, uh, you know, that's not an easy process, um, but it's a joyful one. It's, it's a, and a, and a deeply nourishing and rewarding one to, 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 and this is the, this is the, the tremendous offering of the Buddha and the, the immense gift that he has bestowed on, on the world, like, you know, more than two millennia ago, which is that as human beings, we have this potential to awaken. We have this potential to free the heart and the mind from its confusions, uh, its obsessions, its fixations, uh, and live in a way that's, uh, that's more free. And that happens on so many levels, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's said, you know, the path is good in the beginning, good in the middle and good in the end. It doesn't mean it's easy or pleasant, but that there's this quality of, um, this, you know, this taste, this quality of joy of, uh, a quiet, uh, 
um, a quiet kind of happiness uh, of being on a journey um, that's uh, imbued with with so much um, with so much goodness and beauty for oneself and 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 for the world. And so this is, you know, so we talk about, you know, benefits of silent meditation retreat. We get to really take this practice of not just meditation, which is uh, we talk a lot about, you know, in in kind of uh, Western popular culture, uh, certain sectors of it at least, uh, not just meditation, but, but cultivation cultivation of the heart and the mind, which is much, much broader than the meditative techniques. This opportunity to really take that whole process into a much deeper level in the psyche and uh, really begin to examine and, and witness and understand the, the mechanisms um, of suffering, of stress, and of, and of release from suffering and stress. So that's really the, that's the path. And that's the, that's the opportunity and the gift of, of a silent retreat is that you start to remove the peripherals and the distractions and the, all of the other things that um, co-opt our attention and uh, begin to heal the fragmentation of our minds that is kind of so endemic in society and then start to actually apply our our attention in a more fruitful way to see what what is this what is this mysterious arising of being alive being embodied having feelings and perceptions and relationships and uh how is it all working and why why is it so hard for me to be at peace what gets in the way of that and that's, that's just a great gift and a great uh, blessing to have that opportunity. And so that's, I think, you know, that's the gem of, of silent retreat is the opportunity to, to do that. We'll put, um, so as you know, I haven't been on a silent retreat of my own for a number of years, partially because I have a three-year-old son. Yeah. Um, and partially because, um, I, at a certain point in my own practice, realized that the way I was practicing or how I was relating to retreat had become problematic. Mm. And in a way, it was like, well, there's a few things that were problematic. Um, and I'll share them, not because I think these necessarily reflect retreat itself, but I think they come up enough and I've seen them recur enough with um, people that are doing a lot of retreat practice, let's say, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, which is a small minority, but it's, I think, and it's an important one because these are mm-hmm. the people that then end up replicating the model mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and pitfalls. Yeah. They're pitfalls. And, and I don't know that they always go recognized. Um, yeah. so one of the things I started to notice is that I, I really had built up this idea and I think had been handed this idea in various ways, um, that retreat was the primary if not only place to really go deep Mm -hmm. um, to really have the opportunity for depth to Mm -hmm. emerge in practice Mm -hmm. is that something you've also um oh yeah absolutely yeah i mean i think that that idea is present and it's probably even you know there subtly or not so subtly in the kind of little uh trip i just went off on (laughs) this 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 notion that you know this is the place where the deep practice really happens or and um and that unstated or sometimes stated you know this is the only place that that can happen which is as you said is not true it's not um but i think that there's something to be said for the fact that it's helpful it can it's helpful to have those conditions it's hard to do it uh without any um, space or experience that absolutely is possible. But m- my sense from my own life and from the 
students I've worked with, which is not a huge number, you know, I'm still relatively young as a teacher, um, but is that it's, it's harder, it's harder to develop um, the d- deeper understandings or deeper concentration with daily life practice alone. That's not to say that it can't be developed during daily life, but I think having that reference point to that experience of at least some silent retreat practice doesn't need to be a month, you know, mm. c- could be a week, could be three days, could be five days, but having having some of that sense of what it is to really step out and unplug, I think is uh, is is helpful. And maybe I maybe I would say for many people, men, for many people, not all, but for many people, necessary just because it's so challenging to counter the um, momentum and the tendencies uh, of the mind, but. I would agree it's absolutely possible to develop deep concentration and insight and freedom in daily life. No question about that, but it, 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 I think it's harder to do without the retreat reference. Um, and it takes a certain amount of what we would, what we in the tradition call parami. It takes a certain amount of kind of strength and, um, uh, um, healthy qualities in the mind to withstand the immense pressures and momentum of our culture and society to do that uh, without some degree of, of support and guidance. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and, and I'd agree with you on that point. Um, I throw in one, it's not a caveat. It's just a, an, an alternative way that I see mm-hmm. people also touch into something like this. And, you know, I've been doing this series on psychedelics and meditating mm-hmm. on psychedelics. Mm-hmm. I've noticed for a lot of people that um, psychedelic experiences or entheogenic, you know, mm-hmm. experiences sometimes provide uh, a kind of reference point for a type right. of freedom and liberation experiences that they, that they hadn't had a reference point for prior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and you know that that it's not to say they're the same thing because um, right, right, I right. don't think they are, but yeah. um, but there's something similar mm. in the way that mm. the people that I've met who get serious about mm. contemplation and practice they they do seem to have mm-hmm. some kind of reference point they can point back to an experience or a phase mm. of life or a period where they did touch into something right, um, yeah. that really was compelling and and, right, sure. and felt noetic you know noetically. Yes true um meaning like there was this deep sense of like this is true mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm with you on yeah, that yeah yeah and i think for many of us i know myself included i mean psychedelics was a doorway you mm-hmm. know to to the practice earlier in my life and um and i think that we all i think because it's our nature you know whether we're whether we're taking, you know, mind-altering substances or, or not, I think that we all have profound experiences of connection and stillness and opening and and truth, uh, just in the flow of human life. Because it's because it is part of our nature that we get these glimpses. You know, often yes. it happens for people in nature, or like when a, when a child is born, or when someone passes. It's like these these moments of life where, where the veil kind of drops away, you know, mm-hmm. even sometimes just for an instant, but there's that sense of, of connection and vibrancy and, and, um, it, it has many different flavors and faces. Right. But, uh, but yeah, we can, we can get those reference points in others, other ways. Yeah. I, I love that you said that it's part of our nature, mm. um, because that to me is one of the strongest arguments for why retreat isn't ultimately necessary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because if it were, then our nature, that would not be our nature. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It would be something that we're constructing or building through mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this goes to the heart of some of the deepest contemplative debates that have been waiting, you know, raging <laughs> throughout history, raging yeah. silently. <laughs> um you know, as, as what, what is the nature of the path? Is it something uh, which is a sort of gradual cultivation and development uh, as, you know, as I think the early Buddhists often framed it, or is it something where, you know, we're coming into our own and our own is our own nature. 
Right. And it's not something that has to necessarily be cultivated or developed. It's something that's just, it's realized and it can be realized yeah. through any, any possible way. You know, right. I, I, I consider now retreat as a doorway mm. rather than as a path. Mm. Um, I think it can be some people's path as, mm. as I think psychedelics can. Mm. So for mm. me, I, you know, I'm a little, I, having had this time away from retreat practice, I think has changed my perspective quite a bit. Um, although I'm still teaching retreat and I still think it's valuable. It's not like mm -hmm. anti-retreat. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. That's beautiful. Um, yeah, I think, you know, our nature is something that, uh, I can't remember the word you used, uh, is realized, you said, you know, realized or you could say is revealed, right? It's revealed. Mm -hmm. um, what, a couple of things come to mind, you know, around what, what you're pointing to, Vince. Um, mm. First is the sense of the need. Like, you know, so this whole debate of like gradual cultivation versus sudden awakening, um, which we could do a whole, you know, that's another whole nother conversation, obviously. But sure, I, I, I would imagine... I'm making a little bit of an assumption here, but I kind of just get the sense just from knowing you a little bit and your vibe that um, we're probably on the same page here that the two are actually not in conflict in any way. Yeah. You know, that, that that duality is created by the mind and and that both are true. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, and um, so, but I think that there is, because of that, you know, for many of us, maybe not for all of us, maybe for most of us, you know, these generalizations, but um, there is the need for a path. There is the need, there is be, be, because of ignorance, because of the accumulations of, of ignorance and becoming and, and the patterning that this is very deep patterning and conditioning and consciousness, uh, there is the need for a path. There is the need for cultivation. This is this is this is my my view, and not just mine, but this is the you know, uh, which is not to say that realization, awakening, are, is not always present and available in our deepest nature. But I think that there's there's you know there are pitfalls on both sides, right? And this is not a new conversation, but the um, certain kind of for me and I, i'm curious to hear what your experience and thoughts are on this for me like the more i've practiced um you know and i i i've been doing this a couple decades and still very much consider myself a, a baby you know as far as the trajectory of the path goes um uh one of the things that's changed and developed over time is a, a deeper respect for the power of habit and ignorance. And, you know, there's a way in which it's like, these forces are so strong. And it, you know, there's a, there's a reason, you know, that, you know, depending on your, you know, how you take the legends and the stories of the Buddha, but, you know, there's a reason it took him... <laughs> either so many lifetimes or so many years or, you know, such intense effort to, to, to free his mind at such a deep level to reveal these teachings and this particular articulation of the path. Um, and there's a reason that I think, you know, the world is so shrouded in violence and darkness and not, not exclusively, obviously there's good and there's light and beauty, but there's so much pain, you know, there's a reason. And it's because these, these, tendencies are are so the the hooks kind of grip us and and uh, they're so sticky they, and they they can go so deep so um so i think there's a yeah curious about your your thoughts and experience on that but you know but that that um that take on things and and therefore the need for for training the need for a path whatever that path is to to realize our nature yeah. 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 No, it's, um, I would say, yeah, that's if someone just takes the, uh, the sudden only perspective, you know, it, it, it can really, <laughs> it, 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 
the, the, the inconsistencies become apparent pretty quick, you know, mm -hmm. and usually through that person's behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, what, what I've noticed is exactly what you're saying that, that, you know, the habits of mind and the tendency toward undiluted, you know, self-delusion is so great. Um, so much in fact that, you know, the path becomes uh, a type of self-delusion at times. Mm. Um, and maybe even, you know, the longer someone is on a path, if I mm. think I've noticed this, the longer they're on a particular path without mm. paying attention to what else is out mm. there, mm. the more awake they become in a certain respect and the more deluded they also become. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I would reframe it and say, I think there are a need for paths mm -hmm. because each path can become its own, um, liberative technology and its own, um, trap, you know, mm -hmm. because it's, because every path is limited. Right. Right. Um, you know, the, the Buddha's path included, um, it's kind of what I've noticed. It's, it's, it's got certain amazing strengths and possibilities but then it's it falls short in so many in so many respects now you know given mm -hmm. given what we know now given mm -hmm. what we know now um since that's always changing you know and, and it's not um the timeless is evolving as you know uh, david lloyd once uh quipped mm -hmm. here on the show mm -hmm. so um yeah i don't know phrase, that yeah. i i like I, what i've found is there have been times where i need to switch into another path to kind of pry myself out of a of of habits of thinking that I've brought, um, unknowingly brought into, um, a previous path. Sure. Yeah. And that gets into more of like, I guess you call it like a postmodern approach to Dharma or, mm. you know, um, um, uh, something like that. I don't, I don't know exactly how to characterize an integral yeah. approach, yeah, um, yeah. but, um, what do you There's, think? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I think I would put it slightly differently, but I agree with what I'm hearing is the, you know, the underlying, aim and critique that you're making, which is, I think we need to continually be challenged and challenge our, our view and our way of practicing be because ignorance is so, uh, slippery, you know, ignorance is that which we can't see by definition. Mm-hmm. You know, so any, 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 any path we're on, any practice we have, we can't see our own blind spots. And so we need something or some things. We need a way to reveal those, right? That's what yeah. I'm hearing you say, yeah. you say multiple paths. And so for some, you know, so where does that come from? Where does that revelation, where does that, that reflection come from within the Buddhist path? You know, and this is, so this is great because this is one of the limitations of retreat culture, okay? And uh, to a certain degree, the insight meditation tradition uh, in, in how it's currently practiced, not exclusively, but primarily here in the West, uh, which is that um, the practice gets limited to silent meditation. Whether we're talking about retreat or daily life practice doesn't matter. Meditation and path to awakening and freedom is what you do when your eyes are closed sitting on a cushion or, you know, if you're, yes. you know, walking or standing or reclining, right? That's the, that's the path. Yes. That is not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught the noble eightfold path. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an investigation, a cultivation and a radical transformation of our life on all levels our relationships, our livelihood, our thinking, and as hopefully we'll get to our, our speech and communication. Yeah. And so the limitation, both of the model of retreat practice and not again, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of throwing up a straw man here to, 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 you know, to, um, to make some points and have this conversation because, you know, I think, I think most most Vipassana teachers would agree that, you know, yeah, the path is not just about silent meditation. There's very few people who would say, say that. And yet, as you're, as you're, as you're pointing out, that idea gets, uh, transmitted intentionally or unintentionally, consciously or unconsciously within, yeah. these, within these settings. I'd call it a bias yeah, rather than absolutely. like a, like a, like, it's not like people are, oh, it's a wholesale theology. It's just a bias. 
Totally, totally. So, so that bias is there, and we need ways to uh, to challenge it and to reveal it. And and uh, you know, so when you when you really look at the full extent of the Buddha's teachings, you know, you realize that wow, like he talks a lot about friendship and relationship. It's there. It's there all the time. Like, who are you spending time with? What are you talking about? What are you doing together? You know, like that's really important. You know, that's the precursor for the arising of the Noble Eightfold Path is having wise friends. And so, you know, what kind of work are you doing? How are you using your mind? Um, what what kind of speech do you have? So uh, all these different facets and layers of our of our of our life, you know, our, our ethical conduct, and uh, so so there's a a much broader cultivation that um, that can be brought in, and that's that's not often emphasized or talked about on on retreat. Which is you also mentioned the um, you know the the shortcomings or the gaps in the in the Buddhist path or the Buddhist teachings, and um, one of those that I've focused on for much of my um, practice career, if that could be said, is is been the area of speech. Mm-hmm. Which you know, there's beautiful teachings on speech and a lot of a lot of um, really inspiring um, frameworks that show up. In the in in Buddhist uh, the Buddhist tradition, you know whether it's the prohibitions of right speech, you know to abstain from false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, or idle speech. You know, that's pretty good advice. You know, those those tend to not be healthy for ourselves or others. Uh, or the guidelines for cultivating, um, you know, how to speak well, which is, you know, to say that, which is, it's kind of the inverse, but slightly, uh, slightly refinement of, you know, say not only that, which is true, but also that, which is kind and helpful and, and have a sense of when the right time and place is to say something, you know, so those are two examples of the kinds of guidelines that show up in the, in the tradition, which are timeless, I would say very helpful. Um, and yet what's, what's fascinating is that unlike the spiritual technology of the meditation tradition and, and, uh, kind of functioning of consciousness, we don't find a whole lot of, yeah, but how do I do that? You know, like when I'm in an argument with my friend or my coworker or my spouse, and, you know, I want to blast them, or I think that they're being an idiot, you know, how do I handle that? And how do I, how do I say what's true while being kind, you know, like it sounds great, but you know, so there's a gap there and how to do that. And that's really, you know, the, the book that I have coming out, say what you mean, uh, is, is an attempt to fill that gap. And I don't talk a lot about Buddhism, but for me, that's really where it's, it's rooted in is this, this path to awakening and freedom and, and, how do we um, how do we use this faculty of speech and communication that we've been gifted with um, to further our own our own awakening? Yeah, you know, think, thinking about the in terms of like the world's beautiful, great traditions, the things that have kind of stuck around and been mm-hmm. helpful for people, and thinking about Western the Western psychological tradition. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I remember when Emily was studying uh, transpersonal psychology at Naropa, and she mm-hmm. you know, really saw it uh, from the perspective of being a kind of modern wisdom tradition, mm. um, and, which is very beautiful. And, you know, to, to me, there were so many interesting things that came out of that that I, I see also incorporated in how you're approaching things. I mean, the whole notion of nonviolent communication, of being mm-hmm. able to differentiate between one's, you know, needs on the one hand and um, mm-hmm. what is it? Was it needs and <laughs> I'm feelings, this, yeah. feelings yeah. Well, and need. Yeah, well, no, the distinction you're pointing to is, yeah, one's needs and one's strategies, one's uh, ideas and notions about how, how we meet our, our needs. This is the core kind of, um, uh, core understanding and 
core shift in perspective that that comes not only out of nonviolent communication, which is this particular articulation and form of communication mm-hmm. that uh, Marshall Rosenberg uh, founded, but that really that comes out of humanistic psychology and um, the whole field of uh, mediation and communication, which has many forefathers and foremothers. Uh, uh, which is this distinction between what we want in life in a situation, what's sometimes referred to as our strategies or our positions, which is you know like, yeah, honey, <laughs> I'd like it if you picked up around the house a little bit more, cleaned up in the kitchen a little bit more, uh, mm-hmm. or you know at work, uh, you know, gee, I'd. I'd like to be uh, consulted <laughs> uh, before decisions that affect my department are made, uh, you know, uh, and and so forth. So these these I these what we want the strategies, uh, and then what usually happens in our relationships conversations is that th- we stay on that level, and then we get into on the personal level what's called. Um, argument <laughs> or fighting, which is, you know, well, I want it this way, but that doesn't work for me. And I want it that way. Right. And how far yes. does that go? And then yes. on the, the strategies level, clash. Exactly. So that's what happens on the personal level. And then on the collective level of the nation state, then you get war, mm-hmm. which is an extension of the same manifestation of, you know, this is our land. No, it's not. It's, it's our land. This is our water. No, it's not. It's our water. These are our values. No, that's not right. This is this is the true God. So, the the transformative and and really liber- liberating shift that comes out of these traditions, and they are, I would agree, it's a, it is a wisdom tradition. Nonviolent communication is at its heart an awareness practice. It's not a communication technique. That's the surface. It's a much deeper transformation of the mind and of awareness is to recognize that these strategies, these things that we want, what we want is connected to something that matters to us. There's a, there's a why underneath the what. And when, we do, when we're unaware of that deeper layer of what we term, it's a very unfortunate term culturally, what we term our needs, um, these deeper values or what matters to us in a situation, when we're unaware of that, um, we're very limited in our ability to understand one another, to work together, uh, e- even to really articulate um, a, a powerful and persuasive argument for our position. Because what's it founded on? You know, like, well, this is just the way I want it. You know, well, well good for you. <laughs> you know, well, it's great. There are other people here. So when we can identify. That's what it know, always seems to come down to. Right, <laughs> these other know? people. <laughs> right. Yeah. So when we can identify why, well, why does this matter to me? We tap into a more universal level of human experience. This is, look, you know, um, so I really value partnership and cooperation and balance in our relationship, sweetie. And, you know, you do this and I do that. And sometimes it feels like it gets a little imbalanced and I'm really wanting some more balance and, and teamwork in a sense that, you know, we're on the same team and we're both really contributing. And that feels really good to me. Okay. Now we're having a different conversation. We're not talking about the dishes or the housework anymore because that's not really what it's about. We're talking about my need, uh, you know, for cooperation, teamwork, but maybe we're talking also about my need to be seen and appreciated. Like, wow, sweetie, you know, I I see how much you do and I'm so grateful and I don't express that enough to you. And that's really important to me. So we start getting in these other layers of what's present. Again, whether it's in the personal realm or on the on the work, you know, on the work professional level, you know, why? Why do I want to be informed of the decisions that are made affect my department? Again, is it about uh, is it about feeling like uh, I have a voice and I'm valued here in the workplace, which is a very important need for human beings, and uh, you know, really important for having creative, productive. Um, uh, uh, setting to contribute? Is it, is it about, um, perf- you know, doing good work? You know, look, if, I, if I'm, if I'm not consulted about these decisions, I, I can't actually carry out my duties and responsibilities. And I really care about the work I'm doing. Or, 
you know, is it about taking care of my, my team? And like, you know, I care about these people and I want, I, I want them to feel, uh, like they can do their job in a way that's, uh, easeful and supportive and, and flowing, you know, so I'm, you know, all these various things that could be going on when I say, look, I want you to talk to me before you, before decisions happen that affect my department. Well, why? What is that serving? And we, when we can become aware of that and identify it, we have um, a different conversation. So the the frame, one of the frames that I, I've kind of mm, articulated for the for the book and this this work that I do uh, of of communication, which I really see as as both, and this is why I love it so much, Vince. I, I see, I see communication as an, both an application of contemplative practice, as well as um, a um, how would you say it, like a vehicle um, or a methodology for contemplative practice. It's both. It goes in both directions. And so one of the ways that I talk about it is we're, with this training, we're learning to create the conditions for more meaningful and effective conversations. You know, what helps us to have conversations that are more productive, meaningful, and helpful? And so that that one, just, and there are many, many things that, that contribute to that, but this one that you've named is, is kind of the heart, is the core, which is to be able to identify the deeper needs and values and what matters underneath what we want, the strategies or, or positions. So, yeah. It, it sort of strikes me, you know, that the contemplative path, you know, the Buddhist contemplative path and, and the way it's practiced, um, it's in, I hate to use the term in the West because I think you know, mm-hmm. there, there's there is a global culture also emerging that's mm-hmm. includes Western values and Eastern values. It's not so always so clear to be able to differentiate West and East, but mm-hmm. there's something you know there's there's something here in which you know we f- tend to frame the path in terms of the individual. And you talked you talk about this, mm-hmm. you know, meditation being a silent and and I would add solo endeavor. Um, it's not obviously solo when you're on retreat with other people, but it's about as solo as it can get in a social situation mm-hmm. to be not talking to or, or making eye contact with, in many cases, the other participants. Um, but that I find I've, I've been finding that to be, um, yeah, a challenge because it seems like more and more, and maybe this is my, my, my millennial <laughs> uh, perspective starting to, to arise or I, I don't know, but it, it, it seems like there's a shift in almost the metaphysics of mm. culture where we're starting to understand ourselves, not as individuals mm. primarily, but also as, you know, as social um, mm. and as I forget the name of the philosopher, you use the term individuals, you know, we are these, Um, almost like nodes, network nodes, you know, we, we exist as individuals because there are other individuals and we can't separate ourselves out from that. Even the monks that go out and, you know, spend 20, 30 years in the cave, they come back and share what they've learned. (laughs) Some people die in caves, um, (laughs) but it's very few. And, you know, I suspect they're, they're very much outliers. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, in looking at the self and, others in a different way, like in a totally different mm-hmm. frame, mm-hmm. to me, that changes the very notion of meditation and practice. And it makes communication central rather than like something you do peripherally. Yeah. Um, this is deep. Curious yeah. What you think about that. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you. And uh, may it be so that our cultural perspective on the individual shifts to a more collective <laughs> understanding. Mm. Um, but it's this, it's this very kind of deep irony <laughs> and I might say even kind of tragedy or sadness that, uh, you know, the, the path of meditation, which in the Buddhist, you know, many, many forms, you know, traditions of meditation, but within the Buddhist, Buddhist context, uh, you know, which has at its, at its core, uh, this very unique um, 
perhaps not as much anymore today, but it's at least at that time and for the first couple thousand years after, or really until the last, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe 50 or 100 years, um, this very unique perspective um, on the uh, interdependent, uh, empty nature of not just the self, but reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which which you know? was, I mean, especially <laughs> yeah, in the was, Mahayana tradition yeah. revolution that was put yeah. front and center. Yeah, you know, and so that's kind of like one of the core realizations of that the Buddha had this breakthrough to. He was like, you know, this what this entity that we believe to exist so you know essentially and and separately, uh, and in the ancient Indian context, you know, the whole concept of the Atman and the the kind of core soul that you know moves on from one life to the next and so forth. This, this is not actually in line with reality. Uh, just revolutionary, you know, and. You know, today, in the last, you know, however many decades, you know, more than fifty years, but you know, not that much more. You know, quantum physics has has right. corroborated right what he discovered with his power of his own mind. It was like, yeah, actually, there's nothing there, anywhere that's not defined by something else also there. So, is this deep irony that you know anyone would you know any of us would use these techniques to reinforce that sense of separation and self, and and yet obviously that's what happens. So, I, I yeah, I agree wholeheartedly, and it is it's one of the dangers and limitations of the silent retreat format, which is which is that the um, the structure. Uh, of the form, uh, it addresses in, in not in a complete and thorough way, but it addresses in, in many ways the individual and personal level of, of existence and, and of um, uh, uh, of being. And I, I say not completely, just to kind of, uh, again, sort of point to that sense of, uh, as you said, the need for sometimes many paths, right? Many of us who've done a lot of practice recognize like, you know, you hit patches where it's like, okay, I got to get into therapy now and deal with yeah. this stuff emotionally. And, you know, oh, I need some body work or I should probably still learn some yoga or some Qigong or something to deal with the stuff that's happening in my body. Like there's all these other adjuncts that come in to address yeah. the unfolding or go, or, of consciousness. Go work on my activist, you know, uh, yeah practice right. and you know, focus on other people for a change. <laughs> exactly. It's totally, that's, that's where I'm going is that sense of it addresses the individual and the personal level, but it doesn't address the contextual, the collective or the systemic level. And that's, that's, it's, it's a, I think it's a limitation that is inherent in some ways in the structure um, of, of the, of the field that's there. And it, it, you know, it doesn't address it's set up. The retreat format is designed. It's not designed to do that. It's designed to address the individual level. Yes. But it doesn't address the relational field. It's not set up for that. It's a, that's one of its limitations. You're not talking. You're not really interacting. It doesn't address power or hierarchy. I mean, you have, and it's one. That's one of the dangers. Is you know, you look at a, a retreat format, you know, what do you have? You have this inherent hierarchy, right? Where you've got all the students and then you've got like this teacher or teachers sitting there in front of the room, often up on a stage, right? So you get this, you can, if, if that's not held carefully and consciously, uh, you can get this reinforcement of um, the um, structures of domination and obedience that, that, uh, um, are, are the source of, of so much suffering in, in our society and this kind of, um, uh, re, a, a reinforcement of the tendency that, uh, we have because of our socialization to abdicate our sense of personal authority to the, 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 
the person at the front of the room. Yeah, well, that's, like a, that's what they told me to do. So I'm just going to do it. And then we give up our own wisdom that says, you know, like, oh, this, actually, this isn't really working for me. I think maybe I should yeah. go have a cup of tea, you know? Like, right, right. That'd be like the pathological form of a collective identity where you just give over your identity something else yes. as opposed yeah. to yeah. be able to kind of merge and still maintain your own autonomy. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so great, that, great point. Yeah. yeah. And, um, there's a, there's, there's the corollary, I think the corollary limitations, we start looking at the relational space and, and the, it's not impossible, um, but it's difficult. I think it's more difficult to address that on retreat, um, or at least on silent retreat. You know, I teach, yeah, agreed. <laughs> right. I teach, and I think you and Emily do this too, right? We, we teach social meditation. We teach interactive relational practices. Yes. And, you know, so we're colleague, you know, several colleagues of mine and I hold these retreats where we're, and I'm sure, I'm sure you would agree, like, it's so powerful. Yeah. Right to go in and out of that space of silence and being internal, and then bringing it into the relational field and seeing what's present, what comes up, what's what's there, and then going back inside to process and examine. And so, um, you know, other facets or dimensions of that that I think can fall by the wayside uh, within the retreat, silent retreat structure. We're not often we're not looking at the relationship to the environment. Yes. Um, both the natural environment of the world, but also just at the influence of our, our setting um, where um, we're not addressing, um, and this is changing, thankfully, uh, but for many years, you know, we were not addressing um, issues of, of race and power and privilege and oppression, right? Those kinds of things were just, well, you just, you leave that stuff at the door if you're white and male and right and straight. And, you know, and then if you're not, you know, well, this, that's just your stuff to work with. So, you know, those kinds of, when we only focus on that individual level, those sort of things are in the, uh, can, can be, uh, left out. Um, yeah. And, and if, for people that are really in pain and those things are alive in them, yeah. you know, retreat can be. Um, more like torture than yeah um, than this liberating experience right it's like you're not speaking to me you're not speaking to my experience is very present for me not just in my daily life but right here and right now yeah and when you know i get quiet and silent and you know it's still like what comes up <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like all of that pain is right there right. Waiting. exactly <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah 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 so it seems like we can do better and 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 yet we also have something really beautiful that we've been handed that's that's how i would sum, summarize what we've we've just yeah. explored i don't know how you yeah 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 no I, I i like that i think another another i were kind of winding down here but another another point worth just mentioning kind of in the broader broader view i think of the conversation that we haven't haven't touched on yet is the um the historical origins of this kind of silent retreat format that we've inherited, mm. you know, and, and the, you know, I think it's, it's, it's common knowledge in some circles, but, you know, not, not a lot of people know that, you know, this, this form of like a, you know, seven or 10 day silent meditation retreat of sitting and walking, like is actually a relatively new invention. Yeah, right. It's a like, modern form. It's a modern form that came about in, in, in Burma as a response to colonialism, to re, uh, create and assert, um, the national identity of, of the Burmese people as a Buddhist culture. And, you know, it was a very conscious, uh, creation and that—that's not to say it doesn't still have great value and and merit. Um, so wait, hold on, Oren. Are you saying that <laughs> retreat is an ethno-nationalist creation? I think you are. If you look at the if you look at the history, uh, that's what it tells us. You know, you look at um, yeah, Eric Brown's book. Eric is, Brown's right, the Birth of the Insight. Birth of right, insight. yeah. So thank you for remembering his name. Um, One of the yeah. few things I'll remember today. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you know, you look that at changes the, things. 
It does. Having that historical knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, it, I think hopefully what it does, you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Hopefully what it does is not say, oh, this is all crap and it's not, you know, none of it really matters. But to say like, oh, well, maybe this thing isn't, isn't as immutable as I thought it was. And, you know, yeah, maybe we, maybe it's not just, uh, you know, oh, we actually could do some talking on retreat. Like I could actually look at other people and have a conversation or, you know, not just do some yoga or Qigong, but like, what would it be like to, I don't know, um, have some body work or do some, you know, deeper somatic exploration or some kind of more therapeutic work or, you know, just really play with the form. And then yeah. all of that, once we recognize its relative nature, oh, this is just something humans put together. It's not, you know, nothing sacred particularly about this. No, now we can maybe start to play with it a little bit and have some fun and 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 uh, expand the the form. Yeah, it's Bradley Cooper sings in uh, that that new uh, Lady Gaga uh, movie, uh-huh. A Star Is Born. Uh, maybe it's time to let the old ways die. Ah. Yeah. Maybe it's time to let the old ways go. I, I, I like that. I mean, as being one half of what's needed to really innovate or to try new things or to experiment or to evolve, it's like, mm-hmm. we kind of have to be willing to, to question things. But then as you say, mm-hmm. you know, if we jettison, you know, when we jettison certain things, we do also lose certain things and then we'll have to yeah. recover them later, uh, yeah. again, when they become important. But, um, well, that's, that's the beauty. Work. It is. And I think that's the beauty of what's, in some ways what's happening and you know you've the kind of the the the, the offering of places like insight meditation society and um southern dharma down where you guys are and spirit rock out where i am and many other you know meditation centers is that these institutions and organizations with all their flaws and complexities and everything are, are filling a certain need, providing a certain service and maintaining a certain form and a certain culture. And that that's available. Yeah. And it's important. And that's there for us. And that's there for people to experiment with. And then you have uh, folks like you and Emily and myself and others who, who are uh, playing in the edges, in the margins and saying, well, what happens if we do this? And what happens if we do that? And, you know, like, yeah, let's, let's explore and see, um, how we, how we capitalize and grow upon what's here, uh, and continue to, um, to take the Buddha at his word and investigate, you know, and really see for ourselves. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.